Hi, I'm Max Linsky, and today on The Books That Changed Us, Krista Tippett, host of the radio show and podcast On Being, and the best-selling author of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Her next book, out soon, is called Letters to a Citizen. Okay. Uh, Who are you and what do you do? I am Krista Tippett, and I have a public radio show and podcast called On Being, and I run something called The On Being Project, where we're trying to bring media and public life together. That's that's an ambitious goal, Krista. (laughs) It's got to be done, Max. It's, It's too long that journalism doesn't take responsibility for its impact. It's very true. Yeah. Krista, is there a book that you can remember that um, made you want to be a writer or do this work that you do? So what immediately came to mind for me is um, Rainer Maria Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. And what I can't do is actually trace back if I read this book, you know, before I decided that I wanted to write. (laughs) But I just know that it's been with me every step of the way. Tell me about it. What, what exactly has stuck with you? Well, it's a very small book. I believe, but I'm not sure, I believe that I discovered it when I was living in divided Berlin as a journalist in the 1980s. Even though you, you don't know this for sure, I'm just going to uh, I have a sort of romantic montage of you like finding it in some used bookstore. Yeah. yeah, you can have that. Thank you. you. (laughs) Take some liberties here. All right. So it's interesting. I don't think people often tell the story of this book, even when it gets quoted. Um, It is a series of letters that were published by this young man, Franz Kapus, who had this correspondence with Rilke. And one of the things that's interesting about this book is that Franz Kapus was a young military officer who had this secret desire to be a poet. And he wrote to Rilke asking him, you know, how could he know if he was a poet and what would that mean? And he sent him some of his poems, which I think were like a lot of poems that anyone writes when they're young, which is not, you know, not world class. And Rilke was so generous with him. The thing is, you know, one of the things Rilke says is don't write unless you can't not write. It's Hmm. too hard. It's too painful. (laughs) (laughs) Does that sound right to you? That has kept me going so many times. I know it sounds odd when you're writing and you say this to people who don't write. Like you're feeling sorry for yourself for something that sounds so romantic. Mm -hmm. But... There's nothing worse than that point in the middle of a piece of writing where you really do not believe that it is in you to get out. You know, Annie Dillard said something like, you know, you break your heart, your back, and your brain, and only then, then and only then is it handed to you. (laughs) (laughs) So these two voices of hers and his saying, 
you do this because you can't not do it. And that's how writing feels to you? Yeah, it does. It feels that way, and I've kind of given into it. The interesting thing, I, I guess I was going to complete that story, is that I'm pretty sure that Franz Kapos did not become a writer. <laughs> right? Like This exchange <laughs> with Rilke did not turn him into a poet. I believe he went on and had a career as a military officer. He bailed, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting because I feel like, you know, you and I have talked before and you had some pretty radical like career shifts, I feel like. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you've come back to that book over and over again as at least like a a writing North Star. Yes. And Rilke is a, you know, I had the experience from the youngest age. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma. I didn't grow up in a family of readers or a culture where reading was valued. But from the youngest age, when I managed to find books that meant something to me, I felt like I really did have this sense of coming into relationship with writers. Like Mm -hmm. I was communing with them across space and time. And, you know, I probably have that less now as I'm older. I mean, I've read so many books at this point in my life. But I certainly, when I discovered Rilke, I still had that feeling like I had found a friend and that sense of being in conversation with Rilke. So, I mean, this book was kind of my gateway to Rilke. And later, as you see, you're right, I've had all these radical transitions because I went from being a journalist to going to divinity school. And later I discovered Rilke's Book of Hours, which has, there's a wonderful, the only translation I would recommend in English by two Buddhist teachers, Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows. And, you know, that book is subtitled Love Poems to God. But it is God so, so richly, expansively understood. Is that a book that you come back to often? I do. I mean, both of these books, Letters to a Young Poet and um, Book of Hours, I, these are the books I give away all the time. And yeah. I give away to the young people in my life. Well, describing yeah. them on the show in this way, that's kind of like a way of giving them away. I feel sure. like we all have those books that we give to young people, mm-hmm. but yours are better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're not. I'm sure they're not. But yes, yeah, this book, Letters to a Young Poet, is really a letter to a young human. And it's really, again and again, just one of the most beautiful and true pieces of writing I know. What makes it true? Oh, well, do you want me to pull it out here? Sure. Um, You know, it's a number of letters, and I think the one that, for me, just contains the most jewels is letter seven, which was written from Rome on May 14th, 1904. And it includes things like this. He talks a lot about solitude. You know, I'm an introvert. I think a lot of writers are introverts. I think a lot of avid readers are introverts. And and solitude is not something that is cultivated or honored or named or encouraged, really, in Western culture and American culture. You know, he says to this young man, you should not let yourself be confused in your solitude by the fact that there is something in you that wants to break out of this. This very wish will help you if you use it quietly and deliberately and like a tool to spread out your solitude over a wide country. People have, with the help of conventions, oriented all their solutions towards the easy and towards the easiest side of the easy. 
but it is clear that we must hold to what is difficult. Everything alive holds to it. Everything in nature grows and defends itself in its own way and is characteristically and spontaneously itself, seeks at all costs to be so and against all opposition. We know little, but that we must hold to what is difficult is a certainty that will not forsake us. And he goes on to speak about, you know, it's good to be solitary because solitude is difficult. It's good to love because love is difficult. And actually, just right now, today, as I'm reading these words to you, so much of what is going to give us life and create the world we want to live in moving forward is going to be beyond difficult. And that is the last reason not to do it. That's true. That that's, uh, that's a good definition of true. I feel, I feel like I asked you a very broad question, and I must say, I believe you've answered it. <laughs> okay. In your life, mm-hmm. as you have taken these various paths, and you have come back to that book, has holding on to the difficult been something that has waxed and waned for you, or something that is consistent? Which is to say, are you more and less able to hold on to the difficult over your life? Have you faded in and out of that? Or is that experience consistent for you? What a good question. I think I had one of those childhoods, which does not make me very special, where I had to be dealing with difficulty, right? Where I had a lot of difficulty that was given to me, and I partly made myself and partly became who I am by grappling with that. What I would say about growing older and hopefully a little wiser is that you learn that there's a lot that you make difficult that doesn't have to be, right? <laughs> that, that, that some of the things, some of the fights I was fighting, waging within myself and in the world were not a good use of my energy. But the bedrock truth that the best things also require a lot of us, which is not to say that they don't have moments and times of joy and ease, but they're not fundamentally easy. And that truth has remained, and it's something good to remind yourself of because, I, you know, he's right. We have this tendency as creatures to think it just shouldn't be this hard. Right? It just shouldn't. Well, mm-hmm. actually, that's not true. And it shouldn't be hard all the time. But that something is difficult, as he says, is, is in the nature of being alive. And so I think that I really don't think that's waned. I mean, I'm a pretty intense person. So I've <laughs> always like, been up for a, a struggle. But I do think that I've gotten more discerning about what I allow to be difficult, what I allow to throw my energy into fighting for. Hmm. And that clarity is is a relief. When you have been doing uh, your work, and, and I think specifically writing your book, but I encourage you to answer this question as expansively as you want to, was there a book or books that really inspired you and shaped your work? I mean, I've, I've written three books, and I'm, I'm writing, I'm in the anguish and despair stage of writing a fourth. And... Um, the book that I'm writing now, which is what I've been writing for a few years in fits and starts, I started writing it, well, three summers ago. And so there's this incredible book by 
Andrea Wolfe, who is a British journalist, I believe, and she wrote a book about Alexander von Humboldt called The Invention of Nature. Okay. Have you heard of this book? Nope, you got to tell me about it. Yeah. Um, what Andrea Wolfe does in this book is she charts the influence of this man, this thinker. He was a cross-pollinator and a connector between science and literature. And he influenced Darwin and he influenced Goethe. And he influenced Rachel Carson and John Muir in the 20th century. And in the 19th century, as he's traveling around the world, and he saw, I mean, we didn't know about tectonic plates until the 1960s. We didn't understand how the earth works and how landscapes are formed. But he went to all these places and he saw that there were similar processes at work before we understood anything about the interconnectedness of these things. And when you go back to this book, you see that he saw things that feel visionary when you say them today. And he actually predicted in the 19th century that changes in climate would be the likely effect of practices like deforestation and irrigation. Hmm. And these are some words of her book. And the tremendous amounts of gas and steam being released by the industrial age, by the new industrial age. I mean, that sounds incredible, but why? Why, why is it important to me? Because, yeah. because one of the things I'm interested in and trying to write about is how we grow up and grow wise as human beings, but also as societies. And that that we become wise sometimes by learning things we didn't know before, but we also become wise by seeing things that were there for us to see forever. But somehow there come these moments where we are able to see them consciously. And, you know, the relief of that is that we don't have to make everything up out of whole cloth, right? That, that we have teachers who've been speaking to us for a few hundred years inside books, for example, often through books. <laughs> for example. Right? Through books. I mean, that's how these voices come down. And that as we start to see what was there all along, they are there to help us go deeper already. Something else that I love about... Humboldt, that I didn't know until I read this book by Andrea Wolf, is that the word cosmos, the you know, which is a Greek word, that von Humboldt is the one who brought that word into modernity. He wrote a book, and this is not a word people were using, and he wrote a book called Cosmos, spelled with a K, which is how you would do it in German. But I think, like, as I grew up in the late 20th century and came into the 21st century, cosmos was about outer space, right? That's what we think of. We think of stars and planets. But cosmos, as von Humboldt explained it, was really what I would say the world wide web of life to which humans belong. Hmm. It's about us. It's not just about out there. And... This gets at also a larger point of the thinking and writing I'm doing now, which is that we, I feel like we have the possibility of wholeness that has never been possible for previous generations. And of course, we may absolutely thwart getting to this. But to me, so many of the things we struggle with 
like race. And, you know, we, we work with tools like diversity and pluralism and inclusion as though they are the ends in themselves. But the end is that we become whole, that we become whole human beings living in whole societies. And so for me, Alexander von Humboldt, who also existed before we made this, we created, invented this division between science and the arts, science and the rest of the human enterprise, is one of the people who can help connect us up. And I, mm. and I think that we see, right, we see now that the, the Enlightenment, this is another kind of theme of this book, that the Enlightenment, in the name of understanding it was this invention of mechanisms. And in fact, it was the invention of parts. <laughs> and it, it was us testing out our powers of intelligence and understanding. But, you know, what did we do with something like medicine, which now looks so absurd that we divided our body into parts and then we gave our teeth to dentists, you know, and our eyes to optometrists. We didn't pay any attention to our guts. And now as we actually move into a whole new chapter of understanding ourselves, it is absurd. It's all interacting all the time and we are interacting all the time. And so this book gives us wisdom for seeing that and also seeing before, not just beyond, but before a lot of the divisions that vex us. You really like to think small, do you, Krista? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that wholeness thing. That's kind of the whole thing, right? That's the whole thing for me now. Yeah. That, that's kind of, it's kind of the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we might never get there. No, but let's try. Let's not be content with being as incomplete as we have been and and as unexamined about that. And, you know, that has created, it's not just not led to flourishing. It's, it's been cruel and brutal and it's, it's demeaned all of us. It's not good enough for leaving for the next generation, for these generations alive now or the next generations. Krista, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for taking the time. Well, I love books, and it was really a fun conversation. I'm glad you're doing this. The Books That Changed Us is made in partnership with Longform and MailChimp Presents. The show is produced by Janelle Pfeiffer, art by Joelle Avellino, music by Aaron Lammer. Thank you to Krista Tippett for sharing the books that changed her. You can find the whole By the Books lineup at MailChimp.com slash presents.